0: Hello and welcome once again to the Expanding Eyes podcast where we have been exploring Milton's Paradise Lost for the last several weeks and for some time to come. Something that I totally enjoy doing. I have been talking about Milton, teaching Milton for well over 30 years and I will never tire of it. We have been following the path of Satan, escaped from hell, wending his way to the earth and landing in the Garden of Eden and spying on Adam and Eve, these new creations, because while we have been following the exploits and the speeches of the devils in hell for the opening books, paradise lost and then moved up to heaven meanwhile story is told out of order and we will see it in book seven meanwhile the creation has taken place the events in the beginning of the book of genesis actually occur in paradise lost delayed told out of order in book seven the war in heaven book six then the creation that is really a counterbalancing of the fall of the rebel angels, God's counter action is the creation of this new world and these new beings. Satan spying and we follow Satan and very much we, we are used to film technique where at certain moments in films We know implicitly, we may not think about it consciously even, but the camera follows and focuses upon various elements in the total scene or action, and we realize implicitly that we are seeing things through the eyes of a certain character. And that is very definitely true in these passages in Book 4, where satan is seeing them for the first time and so are we their appearance has been delayed the protagonists of the poem adam and eve don't appear until book four of the epic of which they are the heroes this is clearly modeled upon the odyssey where We do not see Odysseus until book 5 out of 24, building up the suspense. But now, here they are, what are they like? This is also the moment, however, where controversy begins about the subjects of gender and the portrayal of women by Milton in Paradise Lost. And... I hope it's okay, and in fact I hope it's more than okay, I hope it is quite interesting and instructive to my listeners if today we pause a little bit in our forward movement with the plot and carefully first prepare by looking at some of the background of this difficult issue because it is one of the Notorious things, unfortunately, about Paradise Lost. I have had students occasionally tell me things like, well, I had a high school student that when we studied Milton. She told us that, well, we have to study this because it's famous, but you should know that this is a rampantly sexist poem. It is sexist in certain ways and at certain moments and i have no desire to cover that over to apologize or minimize those passages i just think okay that's too simple yes there are those moments and those passages but there are other passages and also the way that even the notoriously sexist moments are interpreted has to be within a much larger context. In order to be fair to Milton, but more than just being fair to an author, there is a big issue here about how we think about gender and the portrayal of women in past works of literature. And I want, as methodically as I can, to lay out The things to think about, I try never as a teacher to tell people how to interpret what to think. What teaching is all about, whether it's in a classroom or a podcast or whether you're teaching yourself, struggling with a complex text, is you lay out all the evidence and then the great Miltonic theme, you freely choose, reason is but choosing, famous line, in both Paradise Lost and Areopagitica, choose what to believe. And of course there are consequences for the interpretation of the poem, but it's a real life issue. There are consequences for us in our decisions in real life. So this is potentially both interesting and illuminating in a way that is still current issues. Let me take it as methodically as I can in a one, two, three sort of way and begin with, first of all, let's put Paradise Lost in the context of the ideology of its time, which was, of course, also sexist, patriarchal, and in certain ways, anti-women, putting women down. It doesn't excuse Milton or the poem, but it does put it within a larger context where in fairness, Milton does not get the indulgence and the patience that some some other authors do. Notably, I would say Shakespeare. We are willing to grant a good deal to Shakespeare, partly just because, hey, he's Shakespeare, and secondly because in Shakespeare's plays there are also portrayals of women so vivid, so sympathetic, so admirable that they counterbalance the bad moments. But the moments are there, Taming of the Shrew is an early play but it is more flagrantly sexist than anything in Paradise Lost. Taming of the Shrew, the title, means putting in the place of an uppity woman who won't obey her husband and by any means necessary and some of those means are pretty drastic by our standards. They would have been even by Shakespeare's time's standards. And at the end, there's a notorious final scene in which the shrew, you know, contemporary terminology would say bitch, has been tamed and makes this simpering, submissive, yes master speech that some directors and some critics, the best you can do with it is say, oh, he doesn't mean it literally. It should be played. The person playing Kate should do a nudge-nudge, wink-wink sort of thing. You know, she's not really submissive. This is irony. Personally, I find that a bit of a strain. It's certainly not like anything else we would be expected to swallow in Shakespeare's time, a kind of almost postmodern, sophisticated irony. But even if we do that, it's an uncomfortable play, far more flagrantly sexist than all the bad moments in Paradise Lost put together. But that doesn't excuse Paradise Lost, of course. But it does put it in a larger context because Milton here cannot avoid issues of doctrine. He is teaching a poem about doctrine and the doctrine involved, because he chooses the fall of humanity, involves the view of women because it was the woman who first ate the fruit and thereafter all women have been blamed for it. The whole history of sexism can be traced this way, and in fact was. If you want to read a stimulating, beautifully written, like all her work, and yet very fair and sympathetic work by Elaine Pagels, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent. Pagels is a religious scholar, one of the great religious scholars, I think, And that book, which I have recommended to any number of students, traces the history of the treatment of women due to the church's interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve. Here we have Milton's interpretation. And as I hope you will agree and not feel that I'm forcing interpretations on you, I think it will be clear that Milton is doing what he can, which is in character for him. He always tries to liberalize whatever legalistic or harsh doctrine he may be facing in the Christian tradition. Predestination, we have already dealt with. Milton radically twists the narrow reductionist understanding of predestination. I will make a case, and you decide that he is also trying his best here to liberalize the sexism that has involved coming down not only in Christian tradition, but and this is the second thing in the Bible itself, especially Paul. There are notorious lines of Paradise Lost, some of them within this current book four, that are used to condemn Milton, but the irony is that it is Milton paraphrasing Paul. Well, it's perfectly possible and anyone is welcome to say, well, then I condemn Paul too. (laughs) But nevertheless, in fairness to Milton, it's not just his acts that he's grinding. He may be, At some moments, and I will get into this in a moment, he may be wrestling with personal issues about women. I'd like to talk, again, hoping that people don't see it as just digressing. It's absolutely fascinating, soap opera, anyway, about Milton's personal life, his troubled relationship with three successive wives that, yes, may well be playing into some of the portrayal here. But at the same time, Milton trying to detach and be fair and some of the influence of those three women was by no means all negative. There, there is a positive aspect to Milton's portrayal of women that also may very well come from his interactions with three wives and three daughters. This man got a late start, he didn't marry until he was 33 for the first time but boy was he surrounded by women in the rest of his life and he clearly learned a thing or two and you know there are moments where you can hear the sound of somebody who's been around the block a few times and knows a thing or two about what marriage is all about. Whether he's always at those moments quite fair, whether there is some prejudice creeping in, we can decide. But that's why it's complicated that he is pushing against the sort of doctrinaire sexism of his time, he is pushing against the reductionist heritage of passages in the New Testament itself. And he has a complicated personal history, also playing into this, makes for an interesting poem. Let me talk a little, just for a moment, about Milton's personal life in terms of marriage. We know that Milton was this studious, introverted, utterly devoted student, also extremely devout and Christian, and he didn't marry until he was 33, probably for reasons simply of temperament. He was not a guy who went to a lot of parties and met a lot of women. But he did meet one, and her name was Mary Powell, and he married her in 1642. And It was a mess. Here is the soap opera. Why was it a mess? Well, first of all, draw your own conclusions. Milton was 33, Mary was 17. You almost feel like saying, well, you know, do we need to say any more? But there is more to be said. And in fact, Milton's nephew, Edward Phillips actually said it. We have a written-down account of this by Edward Phillips. And I'd like to actually read a couple of passages from that because they're famous, uh, they're revelatory. I'm reading them out of an older but still good introduction to Milton by Douglas Bush, the older critic, who says... At the end of May or beginning of June 1642, Milton married. In the words of Edward Phillips, quote, About Whitsuntide it was, or a little after, that he took a journey into the country, nobody about him certainly knowing the reason, or that it was any more than a journey of recreation. After a month's stay, home he returns, a married man that went out a bachelor his wife being Mary, and so forth. Douglas Bush goes on to say, the results of such a marriage might have been predicted by anyone except Milton. (laughs) And then goes on to quote Edward Phillips again, who tells us, okay, in addition to the, not just the age difference, but the fact that she is so young and how mature is she going to be, And on top of that, her family is royalist. And the war is already on. The Civil War is already on. And Milton is high up the ladder of the Revolutionary Party. And he marries a 17-year-old from a royalist family. And according to Edward Phillips, if we can believe him, from the sound of it, something of a party girl this is Philip's description. By that time, she had for a month or thereabout led a philosophical life. In other words, she lived with Milton, who did nothing but study and think. And after having been used to a great house and much company and joviality, her friends, possibly incited by her own desire, made earnest suit by letter to have her company the remaining part of the summer, which was granted, on condition of her returning at the time appointed Michaelmas or thereabout. Michaelmas being come, and no news of his wife's return, he sent for her by letter, and receiving no answer, sent several other letters, which were also unanswered. Skipping a little, Phillips draws the conclusion this proceeding in all probability was grounded upon no other cause but this namely that the family being generally addicted to the cavalier party to the royalists they began to repent them of having matched the eldest daughter of the family to a person so contrary to them in opinion and so forth but they patched it up milton was never divorced. This is connected with the fact that Milton did go on to write not one, but four pamphlets, arguing for freedom of divorce out of the volume upon volume of topical prose that Milton wrote between his early poetry and the 20 years before he would finally begin writing Paradise Lost, He wrote on various topics, but four times, arguing for the freedom of divorce. And his own bitterness clearly informed some of this. We don't have time to pause too long on this, but it is important because, as we will see, when Adam and Eve have fallen and are fighting and alienated from each other, Not just from God, the bitterness of a marriage gone bad starts figuring in. And clearly, Milton went through a time where he felt very bitter about what had gone on. He felt that he had made a big mistake. And here is a piece of prose from Milton. Here is Milton at his most negative, at his worst about women. It is not something about doctrine, it is just personal anguish and anger. Milton speaks of a man who makes an innocent mistake and then wakes up when he shall find himself bound fast to an uncomplying discord of nature or, as it oft happens, to an image of earth and phlegm, with whom he looked to be the co-partner of a sweet and gladsome society, and sees withal that his bondage is now inevitable. Though he be almost the strongest Christian, he will be ready to despair in virtue and mutiny against divine providence. It's in third person, but yeah clearly autobiographical, that he felt horrible about it. But that he argued for divorce, which you had to make quite an argument, Uh, again, briefly as possible. One of the four divorce tracts is called Tetrachordon, one of those jaw-breaking names that Milne liked to title some of his prose works. The tetrachord, however, that's a phrase in music, but it refers in this context to the four biblical passages about marriage and divorce. They are in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Matthew, and 1 Corinthians, so across the map, Old Testament, the Gospels, and Paul. To make a long story short, in the Bible, divorce was left. La- allowed by Moses, by the old Mosaic law, but apparently not by the words of Jesus, glancing as they may be. That may be difficult to get around, you may feel, but as usual Milton argues for the spirit of the law and not the letter. His argument for divorce in a nutshell is that when Jesus prohibits or seems to prohibit divorce, he is stating an ideal, that marriage should ideally be forever, and that's it. Not only till death do us part, but even in the afterworld, perhaps. But that's an ideal. Milton says it misinterprets Jesus' words to say that that has to be true, of all marriages. It wasn't even true in a way of Adam and Eve and they were not yet fallen. What hope for the rest of us? We are all frail. Milton learned at first hand what it is to be frail and blindsided by yourself in your choices involving a partner. He felt it was only compassionate, and therefore argued for divorce as one of the topics that were called in the phrase of the time, things indifferent. The Bible says certain things are allowed and certain things are not, but there is a whole raft of things about which the Bible either does not speak or speaks extremely ambiguously. Those were known as things indifferent, that is, it was up to individual choice how to interpret them. Milton argued that freedom of divorce should be one of those things. Whether or not we agree with that, these things all flowed out of his personal experience, also at the same time with his wrestling with Christian doctrine but they never divorced. The marriage was not only patched up, but went on for a good while. Milton had three daughters, and all three of them, three surviving daughters, I should say, and all three of them were from Mary Powell, who did die in childbirth with the last one. Then, after that, Milton remarried in 1656 but tragically though it was sadly normal enough for the times there was a child born in 1657 the child died but the mother also died so he only had about a year with Catherine Woodcock and then finally in 1663 when Milton was in the last decade of his life, practically, he married a third woman, Elizabeth Minchell. It was an age difference marriage. She was only 24, he was 55, but by that time, he was totally blind. He had to have someone to take care of him. And there is the notorious story, which people embroider, and I would just, again, make your own judgment, but be careful who you're listening to, the gossip story that Milton tyrannized his three daughters into taking down Paradise Lost by dictation. That is an interpretation, especially by people like Robert Graves, the poet and novelist of the 20th century, who hated Milton, wrote a whole book, a whole novel called Wife to Mr. Milton simply to portray Milton as a sexist and a kind of sadist regarding women, I would say be careful. If you check into Robert Grace's own personal history, it was very dysfunctional It himself about the matter of relating to women. And, you know, criticism is supposed to be objective and... You know, Scientific is too much to say, but it's supposed to be logical and objective, but people's own views, people's own quirks get in. And there really isn't much evidence for Milton being a big bully to his three daughters. Yes, he was dependent, no doubt. Nevertheless, there is the complicated history. And one more thing before we actually turn to the text of book four, there is a sonnet about one of the wives. And it's an extraordinary sonnet, so moving that I would like to read it to you, even though, yes, it will take up even more time. But I I don't think you'll complain. This is so beautiful and so moving. In the sonnet, What is going on is that Milton is recounting a dream in which he saw his dead wife come back from the grave. Now, if you look at the enormous footnote at the bottom of the Merritt Hughes edition that I've always used, you will get a full history of the controversy here. Okay, which wife was this? Well, of the two who bore children, it could therefore either be Mary Powell, the first one, or uh, Catherine Woodcock, the second one. And critics are pretty much evenly divided. It could be either. We don't need to decide. I would say this. This is me personally. One thing about Milton is he draws you in personally sometimes from your own background in history and feelings. It's moving either way. If it is actually Mary Powell, this is a woman, and we should remember this when we see the portrayal of Eve after she has fallen, a woman with which he had fierce differences, and yet this poem is so moving about meeting her in the afterworld, or a different type of pathos, almost achingly, if it's the second wife, Catherine Woodcock, because the twist there would be this, that in the dream he can see, but he never saw Catherine Woodcock. He saw Mary Powell. They married before his sight failed altogether, but he never saw Catherine Woodcock. So he would not only be seeing her after death, her face is veiled, but nevertheless he can still see it when he never saw her in life. Let me read you the poem. Methought I saw my late espoused saint Brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, Whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, Rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. Mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, Purification in the old law did save, And such as yet once more I trust to have Full sight of her in heaven without restraint, came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined, so clear as in no face with more delight. But oh, as to embrace me she inclined, I waked, she fled. And day brought back my night He can see in the dream, but day and waking Brings back his night, his blindness A tremendous moving poem, and yes, we all know that men can say all sorts of wonderful loving things and still be stalkers and creeps. But I think it's a little too simple to stop right there in the case of Milton. But you have to see for yourselves, and we do move to the portrayal beginning in book four, our first sight of both Adam and Eve. And let me begin by pointing out, and we will go on with this then next time and go on with the plot of the poem. Let me begin by pointing to some of the blatantly sexist, can't even get three pages in and we're already blatantly sexist in the portrayal of Eve, and footnote them not just to defend Milton, but again to put this in the context of Christian tradition. For example, line 296 of book 4, not equal as their sex not equal seemed. For contemplation he and valor formed. For softness she and sweet attractive grace. He for God only, she for God in him. Which, frankly, you know, out of context, just sounds disgusting. <laughs> he forgot only, but she's too busy worshiping her big master. Well, it may or may not make it you feel any better about it, but it certainly complicates things that he forgot only, she forgot in him is a paraphrase of Paul in the New Testament. And this is, as they say, the difficulty in judging here where to stop and blame Milton personally when to have to wrestle with the entire tradition. And, you know, um, what am I talking about when I say Paul? A passage like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God." So Milton's line is simply paraphrasing that passage. There are other things that are definitely not in Paul, starting with the physical appearance of Eve where Milton waxes eloquent about, in current slang, how hot she is, how not just beautiful but sexy she is. And again, by our standards, it comes off as possibly uncomfortable. It's connected, as we'll see next time, however, with a larger issue of Milton's defense of the erotic, of sex in general, in an age in which many of his fellow Puritans, well, that's what the term Puritan has come down to mean, people who are prudish about sex, and the Catholic attitude was certainly no better that sex is only for procreation, it is definitely not for having a good time. It wasn't until Vatican II that they added in that it was also for the expression of love in a monogamously married couple. Before that it was only for reproduction and if it was not, it was a sin. Milton is eloquent about how he is sex positive. Yes, within a monogamous tradition, but still. And the portrayal of Eve is a way of validating female beauty from yes a male point of view but again it's complicated and so complicated that we will take it up again next time I hope the extended discussion has been both useful and interesting and very human that to me is the overriding thing for all this gorgeous blank verse It's about very human things and we will go on from this point next time.